But let's look at our text this morning in Revelation chapter 2. Another shorter text, and so there's kind of fun things about doing a shorter text, Um, but there's so much here, I think, in every church, and to look at that and learn, and so we learned something from Ephesus, we learned something from Smyrna, Uh, and uh, we're going to learn something from Pergamum this morning, and I would say, just on the outset, I recognize this church a little bit more. So last week, it's a little hard. The persecuted side, I don't have a lot of experience being a church in Gretna, Nebraska in the United States. But here, this church and their issues, that I do recognize a little closer to the church that we see here in America. So let me read together. We'll each read verses 12 of chapter 2 through 17 and the uh, letter addressed to Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, this is what the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says. I know where you dwell, Where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, that you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, and to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. And so you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. But if not, I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who deserves it. Father, we come now desiring to learn the lessons that your spirit would teach us this morning from this letter addressed to the church as a whole, and even in specific, this note to Pergamum. Things they have done well in places where they have compromised. Help us to learn from the good and from the bad and evaluate our own hearts, our own lives, our own church in light of your truth. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. This idea of accommodate, accommodations. I was thinking about it this week as I looked at this church. It means to have enough space for, to accommodate. I think of accommodating a guest to provide lodging for, to take into consideration or make adjustments for or allow for. I thought I'd just look and see news articles, where it's used. So just the first three that popped up. Kingston, Plymouth, scramble to accommodate migrant families. School district's five-year plan calls for adding new schools, we know this one, to accommodate Polk's growth. Institutions, another headline, must do more to accommodate those with long COVID. I think we understand what it means to accommodate someone. And it doesn't mean something bad, right? It can be good or bad. In the good way, my D group meets Thursdays in the morning, 6.30 at 180th and Scooters, uh, 180th and Dodge at Scooters. We haven't always met there. 
We meet there because it's quiet. We meet there to accommodate seasoned saints with ears that don't hear well in other coffee shops, right? We make an accommodation. We can meet someone somewhere a little, a little quieter. For families, you have children. It requires a lot of accommodation. It's a good thing. If I went back 12 years ago when Ash and I were first married, our Sunday after church looks a lot different than it will this afternoon. There's just some accommodations that have to happen. And I probably should be stricter, but I'll get home. And it was never this way when I grew up, but I'll even let the kids pick something to watch. My house, you know, you didn't, the controller was dad's. But I accommodate the kids and say, it's all right, I'll, I'll watch with you, you know. Make, make some accommodation to know that your dad loves you and we, we can do this together. In work, you make accommodations. I guarantee all of you have been at work. This even happens in ministry where you have to accommodate people. You have to accommodate policies. You have to accommodate the way it's always been. Even if you go, that's ridiculous. I don't know why they do it that way. And you accommodate because it's your job and you, you don't want to get fired. But are there things along that line Things we should not accommodate. That really is core to one of the biggest debates within the church today, especially the American church. How much do you accommodate the culture, the world? Because you can kind of see, I understand at work, there's certain accommodations you're going to have to make, but what about inside the church's walls? Even outside the church's wall, do you accommodate people's preferred pronouns? Do you accommodate cultural preferences for the sake of the gospel. Very often, 1 Corinthians 9 is, is brought to the forefront. And look at Paul. He says, I, I will be all things to all people. But the caveat, if we were to look at 1 Corinthians 9, which is not our text this morning, is he does not mean he's going to sin. He's just saying, if it's not a sinful thing, I'll go ahead and acquiesce. And usually in, in that context of 1 Corinthians 9, he's willing to give up certain things. He's willing to give up certain freedoms that by itself are not sinful, but yet he doesn't want to cause people to stumble. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians, that's chapter 9, the first eight chapters are full of all kinds of things. Paul is writing to them very upset. In essence, shaming them to say, this ought not to be so in the church whether it was the issues of morality or the issues of believers suing one another. So clearly, he is not saying being all things all people means that we should tolerate everything that the world tolerates inside of the church. In fact, it's the opposite. And so one of the, the big passages for church discipline finds its way into 1 Corinthians. And I understand we have to accommodate, as I said, certain things in the world— we don't accommodate sin, and the people of God cannot accommodate sin in the church. And that temptation comes when you see the pressure of persecution. And one of the things that's interesting to note throughout all of Scripture is where does, in the Old Testament, Israel fail? Where does the church fail in the New Testament? I find it interesting that it is not the persecution that comes from the outside. It seems to always be the compromise on the inside over and over and over again. It's not as if Israel marched into the promised land and the walls of Jericho were too tall. No, 
the Lord's going to knock those walls down no matter what. What, are the, what. what stops the march? If you think of back to Jericho, well, what stopped it is ultimately the sin of Achan for the moment because he takes the gold and silver, which he's not commanded to. It's sin within the camp that is the cancer that spreads and affects the impact and the power of the church. This accommodation of sin, as we'll see, has an agent behind it. And just as we saw in Smyrna, that the agent behind it, as he calls it in chapter 2, is the synagogue of Satan, those who are blaspheming and turning over those citizens there, the church there. And likewise, he's going to say that this city of Pergamum is where Satan dwells. It is, in that sense, his system And so, looking back here, what we have covered so far in Revelation, this as a whole is about one big thing, which is the return of Christ. And he keeps addressing this issue to the church. And what is he going to find? Ephesus, similar to Pergamum, there's some good things and there's some bad things, but it's going to be the opposite. The the good thing in Ephesus is they dealt with this compromise of doctrine and things, but they lacked their first love. And so their repentance involves going back to their first love. Smyrna doesn't really get any criticism. They seem to have a lot of similar persecution, but they don't compromise. And so there's just comfort given. Be faithful, verse 10, until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. The churches he who overcomes will never be hurt by the second death. But when you come to verse 12, it feels like a different note is struck. We've talked about how the vision of Christ is picked up on in all these letters. Chapter 2, verse 1 to Ephesus, he says, This is what the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says. Well, yes, there's some trembling that if the Lord is among us, the Lord sees, the Lord knows. If you're in the wrong, that can be terrifying, but at the same time, that's comforting. He's there. He knows. He walks among you. He, you are not alone. To the church there at Smyrna, verse 8, this is what the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. And Well, if you're potentially going to have to go to the stadium to be martyred, you want to know the one you serve was dead but now is alive. But then you get to verse 12 and you get to Pergamum and he says, this is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's a little different. That is an offensive weapon throughout the book of Revelation, usually meant for destruction. Maybe it's two-edged in this way in that it, yes, both is going to save and to judge. So that way you might find it, but it still strikes a very terrifying kind of note of, let me remind you who I am. Jesus is the one who has this two-edged sword that's coming out of his mouth in the vision, and he's coming to judge. And what is he going to find at Pergamum? Well, this city has a lot of, has had similar issues to the last church. 
just to get a little geographical, someone was asking about Patmos, which is such a small island there, kind of off of Ephesus. You can't quite see it up there, but that's where John is writing, just off the coast in that prison kind of island. But you'll notice as you work your way around the postal route, Pergamum's up there towards the no, uh, to the north. And it was a much larger city than Smyrna. Smyrna was wealthy. It was what I kind of view as, as you read about them, artsy. Kind of feels like the left coast, if you're, you know, you, you think of America that way. But Pergamum feels a little bit more towards the, the east coast to me. It's a little more, it's where the Ivy League schools for the most part are. It's, they are known for education. They are known for their medicine. In fact, what they were most proud of and what their name, people say, comes from is that they invented parchment and the animal skins to write things on because they wanted to advance their own library. So if you want to advance a library, first of all, you got to do your own thing. They didn't want to outsource to Egypt and get papyrus. They also wanted to figure out ways in which you could start to catalog books differently than these large scrolls. And so that's where parchment, the invention of it, comes from. It was called one of the greatest cities in Asia Minor, and that library there had 250,000 volumes, which in one sense sounds impressive, but then you realize no printing press. Every one of those is handwritten and copied. And so it said only Alexandria rivaled them in their books. So they're very proud of that. They're very proud of the legacy of their city. They're also very proud, just like Smyrna, of their dedication to Caesar. They're the place where the first emperor temple was placed. They were rabid promoters of that imperial cult and proud, just like Smyrna. And really, Ephesus was as well. And it is likely, as you look at 2.13, when it talks about Satan's throne or Satan's seat, is there's a sense in which they understand, yes, that seat is sitting there. Because the question is, will the believers say Caesar is Lord, or will they say, no, Christ is Lord? Well, as we saw in Smyrna, the choice comes once a year, who are you going to bow down to? Are you going to bow down to Caesar or not? And in Smyrna, they say, no, we're not going to. And they face consequences, both that make them poor and cost some of them their lives. And some of you may have looked at the church last week and thought, well, there's got to be another way around this. There's got to be a way to go to the temple once a year and burn the incense, light the candle for Caesar and live. In fact, it's probably better. In fact, God probably wants me to do that so that the church continues and the church needs me. And, um, you know, I got a pastor of that church, so why not go ahead and do that and say that? It's just words anyways. I don't, I don't mean it. And that kind of thinking is prevalent here in Pergamum. It's this idea of, of compromising. If we're not too loud, if we're not too bold, and not just towards the city, but even within the walls of the church, perhaps we will face less persecution. The issue here is that idea of accommodation, of compromise. And so the lesson I think we can learn is, therefore, on the flip side, how do you not compromise? How do you not accommodate Satan in the church. And so I want to look at that question and find our answers in the text this morning. But as you draw yourself and we see that kind of note of watch out, 
the one with the two-edged sword is about to speak, we're going to see that if you want to be a church that does not accommodate, that does not compromise, that does not accommodate Satan, then you first need to recognize whose world this is. Recognize that where you live, the age you live in, the church age, this is Satan's world in a sense. It's not Satan's world in that he is sovereign. He's underneath God's sovereign rule. But for this period of time, he is loose and he is busy and he runs this system. And you don't want to be in the dark on that. Jesus says in verse 13, I know where you dwell. Where's that? He says, where Satan's throne is. This is the realm where he exercises, again, not total authority, but this is his world, his realm in that sense. And you hold fast my name. So this is the good side, versus verse 14, where he's going to have something against them. But you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so, although you recognize this is Satan's system, we hear in this letter that not all is bad news. The severe tone is struck, but Jesus does at first say, not everyone has done this. He's not accusing everyone in the church of compromise, but they do allow some level of compromise, some factions. And I'll be honest, that is the easiest way. It's easy to be personally convicted and say, I won't do that. It's a little harder to start standing up and saying, I'm not going to let other people do that, or I'm not going to let this church become known for that, to make a stand to cause division, because you don't want, hopefully it's, you want unity. But sometimes the truth creates division. And that's exactly what is happening here. In fact, they have one faithful witness. And you notice that my name, my faith, my witness, my faithful one is noted of one here who is a witness, who is a martyr. The same, the term we get in Greek from witness is our English term for martyr. He is a witness for Christ. It's going to be important as we continue on, this idea of he didn't deny my name because if you are truly in relationship with Christ, then you have a new name. But there are those who hold fast to Christ's name. There are those who do not deny his faith. And Antimus, his witness, his faithful one, was martyred. There's not much known about him. Church history would say that they grabbed a, they, they fashioned a bowl and basically lit a fire and threw him on it. That's how he was killed and martyred. However it was, it was a big enough deal that this church knew Antipas and they knew what happened to him. The name means to stand against all and he stood against those and he was willing to be martyred for Christ. But he reminds us again in verse 13 that this is where Satan dwells. Ephesians 2.2 says of Satan that he is the prince of the power of the air. John 12.31 says he's the ruler of this world. And 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it's troubling. Lowercase g calls him the god of this world. How do we understand that? How do we understand that he is a God of this world. Well, clearly he is not God. God is sovereign. But in his infinite wisdom, he's allowed Satan to operate within these boundaries. 
that are going to set about all the events that are going to lead to the end of it all, which, of course, Revelation is pointing to. The time will become its full. The church will be fully gathered. All those will be his, and Christ will return. Satan has power over this world. It's important, though, I think, to know, if you look at Colossians 1.13, that you, the believer, is not under the rule of Satan. But the rest of the world... Unbelievers? Second Timothy 2, 26 says that they are in the snare of the devil. Throughout Revelation, it's a pretty sharp distinction. If it's not of God, it's of Satan. Who's pushing? Who's pulling? Yes, it's, it's his system. I'm not saying Satan is involved in everything. He's not omnipresent. Yes, his demons are doing his deeds. But it is to say... He is the one pulling the strings. He's blinded the minds of the world, of unbelievers. Second Corinthians 4.4 4 goes on to say, and those ideas and those philosophies and those temptations, that little temptation to take a little bit of what the world has and combine it with Christianity. So Christianity has worship. You worship the one true God. Well, Pergamum has worship, and they worship another God. Can't we do both? That's the whisper in the ear for them. They need to recognize this is not their home. They are sojourners. They are exiles, Peter says that are sojourning, waiting through the return of Christ to bring about his kingdom, which is your home, of which you are a citizen. That's where it begins, understanding. Antipas clearly, I think, understood that he understands where he belongs, and it is not here. And so you don't hold as tightly. And if you don't hold as tightly to this world, you're going to have a lot better chance of avoiding the second thing which is you're going to have a better chance to go ahead and stand against everyone else, against the system, against what is really referred to that system, the world in the scriptures. You're going to stand against it and be able to take both what we do here, the church, and sin seriously. Take the church and sin seriously. And I, I say both of those because at first I looked and I thought, well, we need to take, look at this. Verse 14 and 15, you need to take sin seriously, but also you need to take the church serious because the issue here isn't that Pergamum is a sinful place. That's not Jesus' criticism. His criticism that the church has become a sinful place. Not really concerned, right, with what Pergamum is doing. The unbelievers there are acting exactly how you would expect, but he's concerned how the church there is acting because they're the ones acting inconsistent because they are not taking either the gathering, the Lord's table, or sin, particularly you probably would say public sin, public compromise. They're not taking it seriously. Look at verse 14. What you see is these, there's, there's some good things and Antipas was faithful, but I have, Jesus has, a few things against Pergamum. That you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. And secondly, related, 
You also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Go back to Ephesus. That was one thing they did do. They have their own issues. Doctrinal purity wasn't one of them. But Pergamum has this issue. They're allowing false teaching. And it's not just false teaching in kind of ethereal doctrine, but it is, it is moral compromise that has happened here. And Jesus wants you to flash back. And if you haven't read Numbers lately, this is, you know, you'll get more by going back. We won't go there this morning. But Numbers 22 through Numbers 24 and, and pretty 25, and more importantly, probably understanding Numbers 31. But when you look at Numbers in this Old Testament story, what you probably remember from it is the talking donkey, which is an important part of the story. It's, it's what I can remember from Sunday school. But beyond that, if you get all the way to chapter 31, Balaam is hired in 22 through 25. He's hired to curse Israel. And he goes out and he tries to curse Israel. The angel stops him, interestingly, with the sword. And he's not able to do so. In fact, he says, I can't do anything but bless them. And the king says, curse. And he still blesses. And he kind of disappears in chapter 25 and just goes away after these four different tries. But if you get to 31, he kind of comes back on to the scene. And it, and it seems what has happened is if he couldn't curse them, because you start thinking, well, this guy's blessing Israel. Maybe he's not so bad. Well, no, he is sold out for money. And if cursing doesn't work, he in essence says, I will get you in a place where God will judge you. Because the problem isn't the nation of Midian attacking Israel. The problem is the compromise inside of the nation. And so if you go to 30, well, actually, let's go there real quick. Numbers 31. You see in Numbers 31, let me just start in verse 16. But what has gone on with the Midianites is that the temptation becomes not only to intermarry, which they're forbidden to do, not for ethnic reasons, but why? Because of religious reasons, that they're to stay and remain pure. And not only that, but where does the line of the Messiah come through? Intermarrying is is, is serious, and they're to avoid it so that they avoid the idolatry that comes with it. In verse 16, he says, Behold, these, and they're talking about these women, have caused the sons of Israel through the word of Balaam to act unfaithfully against Yahweh in the matter of pure. So the plague was among the congregation of Yahweh. He's going to go on, and they're going to deal with the sin in the camp. So now, kill every male among the little ones. Kill every woman who has known man intimately. But all the girls who have not known a man intimately, spare for yourselves. And you, verse 19, camp outside the camp seven days. Who has ever killed any person, whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves. You and your captives on the third day, on the seventh day. And you shall purify yourselves every garment, every article of leather, and all the works of goat's hairs, and all the articles of wood. Danielzar the priest said to the men of war who had gone to battle, 
Remember we talked about priests early on in in Revelation? They're not as peaceful as one might think. This is the statute of the law which Yahweh has commanded Moses. Only the gold and the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire and it shall be clean until you... It shall be purified with water for impurity, and whatever cannot stand the fire, you shall pass through the water, and you shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean. And afterward, you may enter the camp. Elzar is ultimately earlier being used as God's one who is going to cleanse the camp. It's serious business. Well, that is the sin of Balaam. If you go back to Revelation chapter 2... Related to that is this idea of what we've heard before of the Nicolaitans, which is connected to immorality as well. And this idea of probably early Gnosticism, that they can separate the physical from the spiritual. That is to say that what you do in the body, namely sexual immorality, you can do that and remain spiritually pure. We saw in Ephesus and we see here that is not possible. You can't go down to the prostitutes at the temple and then say, well, I haven't sinned because I kept my mind spiritually pure. No. There's a temptation to just allow what is acceptable for that culture, which may not be acceptable for ours, and just to allow it to keep going on. You can join the church and keep going down to that temple. You can keep partaking in their sacrifice, keep eating the things that are sacrificed to the idols there. Jesus is saying, don't allow it. The same thing, maybe a little different in our culture, right? We don't have as many idols, we don't have as many of those things that you can see, but there are certain things that the culture prizes. And we have our own sacred cows, as it were. Nebraskans? We just want to be nice, right? We just want to be a good neighbor. And that's good, I think, as it goes. But when you put on the church hat, there's a different expectation that should come to the church. This isn't just your neighbor. This isn't just someone that you go to school with. This isn't just someone that you, you work with. This is someone else who names the name of Christ. And that makes all the difference in the world. And that temptation that if you suppress... Um, if you, that all of a sudden, if you can just allow a little bit of sin, it'll somehow treat the issue. And you can somehow suppress the sin through some level of compromise. But the church needs to take sin, especially here, and I think as well, sin that is known. It's not going after every thought in that sense of trying to the busted up, but it is to say, hey, we see these things and the church needs to make clear statements about them. No one needs to be confused. And isn't that something you see so clear in the church today that it, it, no one really wants to let you know what they believe? There's kind of been that movement. I know it takes a while to read our doctrinal statement, but I like it. Go with like 18 pages. Why don't you just have like those nine or 10 things that every evangelical church has. Well, I don't want you guessing, right? I don't want the world guessing. I wonder what that church believes. I want them to go, we know exactly what that church believes. People shouldn't be shocked 
If you tell someone that you go to Providence, that should mean something. The temptations are still to here today. The temptation to accommodate, especially when it's to lessen persecution, which we don't even do it in the risk of persecution, right? We, we do it for far less. Simply, you, you avoid someone's judging gaze. It's always the temptation in Christian academics. You don't want to be the, the one with a PhD who believes certain things that the world believes are, are foolish. There's always that temptation to accommodate over and over and over again. But the church should be unashamed to be the church. In fact, even just this past week, I saw an ad for an event a church was doing. And everything in that ad was saying, we're inviting you to this event, right? We're in Harvest, so in Harvest Festival. We're inviting you to this event, but just let me make you clear, it's not church. It won't be anything like church. That happens on Sunday morning all the time. Churches advertise that, don't worry, this, you're going to go to church, but it's going to be the least like church you'll ever, you'll ever experience. As if that's a good thing. There's a few reasons I don't think that's a good idea. One, it's, it's a bait and switch, which is a nice way of saying that's not true, which is another nice way of saying that's lying. Because all of a sudden, you're going to say, come to Christ, put your faith and trust in him, and your life will be better. He will grant you blessing and honor. And then you're going to come with kind of the other hand and go, and there's this cost of discipleship, and it might divide your family, and it might cost you relationships. And all of a sudden, they start reading the scriptures, and they're reading the gospels, and see all these hard sayings of Christ. Yes, there is hope. Yes, there is rest in Christ. But there is a new life. You're a new creature and you put off the old. You can't simply just add Christ to your existing life. No, it's meant to be a transformation. Yes, rest comes. But if you call yourself a Christian, you should live differently. And you're going to move from all of a sudden sin isn't that big of a deal to taking sin and the outward sin is probably the easiest part, right? To start to curb. And as you grow and mature, you're going to start curbing this thing up here. And that gets even more difficult. Taking captive our, our thoughts. But it also gives, and you see it throughout the church today, this idea of false assurance. People start thinking, I am a Christian. Why? Why well, go to church? There's a little more to, to being a Christian than that, Right? Or the idea that, well, I believe the gospel, and you ask the question, what is the gospel, and they can't give an answer. It's why you have to understand what the gospel is to be truly saved. And so they go in, they go week in, week out to church, and they, they never understand. And so there's false assurance because they're not truly believers. But there are true believers who go to churches like that, where there's significant compromise. But for them, it, it just weakens the church. It weakens it because... They're not growing. They're not maturing. They don't know how to make distinctions. They don't know, how do I confront sins such as these? How do I engage the culture? Because they've never been taught. Well, there's good, I think, gospel-motivated reasons for unbelievers to feel like outsiders. And that's the most probably pushed-against thing 
as I discuss with other pastors, they just don't want anyone to feel like they're on the outside looking in. But I'm okay with that. You should be welcoming. No one should feel unwelcome here. But there is a sense in which they should feel like they're looking in. If they're not believers, they should feel like they're looking in. And they should see certain things. They should see love. They should see people that are serious. They should be people that care for one another. They should see all those things, but you don't want the confusion. They're not in the church yet. They're trying to make a decision, right? What is the church, first of all, which becomes difficult if you're trying to tell them it's, well, what is the church and what am I committing to? And they don't really tell you. That's confusion on the gospel itself, but also confusion on what it means to be part of the church. The example I often give is, uh, some of you guys know this with Gretna, it still has a volunteer fire department despite you know, massive growth. It's still all volunteer. And they want volunteers. So if you live in the district, they want you. But they just don't take anybody, right? In fact, if you said, I want to be a fireman, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to meet with the chief and, and get an interview. First thing he's going to say, he's going to sit you down and say, well, hold on. Do you know what we do? Well, not really. Well, do you know what commitment we ask of our members? Well, no, but I want to do that. Okay, hold on, hold on. Why don't you come to drill next week? Okay. Because they want you to come. You're an outsider. You're not a fireman yet. But you're going to go and you're going to watch firemen. You're going to watch how they train. You're going to watch them go on calls. They're going to sit down and say, what do I need to do? Well, if you commit to this, you're going to have to go on 10% of the calls. You're going to have to go to three or four practices every single month. And then you're going to have to decide, okay, so this is what this organization is. This is their purpose. This is what they do. Do I want to join it or not? They don't want people joining being confused because, of course, they're going to join and go, well, I didn't know that. You mean I got to go on 10% of the calls and there's four calls a day? 28 calls a week. I go with three calls. Each call takes two hours. Are you sure you want to do that? They don't want people coming on the back end, being confused. And the same thing for church. I don't want people being confused about what it means to be a Christian and the cost. I don't want to be the guy that's I'm trying to stiff-arm anybody, right? But at the same time, I lovingly say, well, do you understand what you are committing to? I don't want us to be a stumbling block to the Jews. I don't want us to appear foolish to the world, but guess what the gospel is? So Paul says it's a stumbling block to the Jews because they don't admit that he's Messiah, and it is to the rest of the world, it looks foolish. So let's make the issue the gospel. Let's make issue the church. Let's make issue real issues, not preference issues, but at the same time, it's okay to make certain things issues and to take the church and say, this is a serious thing. We gather It's a commitment. And be clear about what the church is and be clear about the fact that you can't continue living this sinful life, taking what in this culture, and trust me, we could talk more on our culture, things that are elevated as idols. You've got to leave those behind. Take the church and sin. Take them seriously. If you don't want to be one who accommodates, if you don't want to be like the church here in Pergamum, those are the two things you have to do is recognize Satan's system, take the church and take, it, take sin in it seriously. And lastly, 
This idea here of, again, a call to repentance. A call to the fact that we're not done. You think, why? I repented of my sin and I turned to Christ, became a Christian. Well, yes. But at the same time, we understand that in the realm of sanctification and our growth to become more like Christ, we, we, we are taking wrong turns all the time and maybe we've been tolerant. Maybe we have accommodated Satan in certain ways. And if we have, repent of them, verse 16. You want a little motivation? Because one day you're going to stand before the throne, even as a believer. Now your salvation is not on the line, but that beam of seat judgment, there's still a, a way in which every believer will be judged for their actions. Ultimately, yes, it is Christ who covers us, but there's still a way in which we should want to honor Christ in all that we do. Therefore, repent. But if not, I am coming to you quickly. Talked about these phrases in Revelation. This isn't the idea that he's coming quickly in time. It's just saying it's next, right? And it's next on the calendar of events in God's calendar. And if you die, same thing, right? It's coming faster than you think. And it should serve as motivation. In fact, he's going to say, for those who perhaps aren't believers within Pergamum, because it seems there are some who are not, the false teachers, I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war. That is judgment's coming. Make war against them with the sword of my mouth. You as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So repent. And secondly, he reminds us that there is promises given to those who repent and those who come to Christ and those who are his. It's the believer to him who overcomes, which is a believer. Not a special, not a unique status or category, but anyone who claims Christ is saying to him who overcomes, who finishes the race because they are his and he is theirs. To him, I will give some, and this is interesting language, some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Balaam, Old Testament, Numbers, Wilderness. We talked about Revelation. The more you know the scripture, especially the Old Testament, the more you will get out of Revelation because he makes all these references without quoting. He just drops hidden manna. He just drops Balaam because he thinks you should have a reference point for it. Manna was what Israel was fed in the wilderness. It showed up every morning fresh and anew. And a pot of that manna was placed in the Ark of the Covenants. And instead of eating these things that they should not be eating, teaching of Balaam, a stumbling block for the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and the sexual morality that accompanies those things. He's saying, instead of eating and doing those things, they need to feast on God's holy food. To be able to connect here, the, the bread of life, which is Christ, but probably even more connected to here, this stone and this entrance, that this idea of that he will give you some of the hidden manna, which, of course, why is it hidden? Because it hasn't been revealed yet. But it's probably connected to the next picture. This of this white stone and that there is a coming hidden banquet that you have not seen. And I will give the overcomer the hidden manna. 
and I will give him a white stone. Now, white stone's going to have a new name, which no one knows, but he who receives it. I think this promise of hidden man is connected to what we're going to see later in Revelation of the portrayal of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's saying there is a reward, there is a feast, there is a, something better from God, from heaven that is coming. Persevere, overcome. Refuse the pagan feast, for one day you will get to feast on the hidden manna. And this idea of a white stone, which honestly, well, there's a lot of debate over, but I think connecting it to that feast and connecting it to this idea of how it was used in ancient times is that that white stone is a ticket. It is an invitation. One commentator put it this way, it's used like a ticket to gain admission to a feast. People would win the games. They are given this stone, their name is inscribed, and they present it to be admitted into the feast. And that way, you'll give you a white stone. It has a name. He says it's new that nobody knows and will be given to you as an entrance into this marriage of the Supper of the Lamb. Even more so, if you flip over real quick to Revelation 3.12, this name thing keeps popping up. He says, to he who overcomes, Philadelphia, I will make a, him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and I, he will never go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. It's going to pop up multiple times in the book of Revelation. Christ's name. He says, you have a new name. Well, what does it mean? Well, I think one, it's a name nobody knows. So there's one sense, I don't, I don't know. But, but I think it's used in a, in a specific way. Um, and, and this is, continuing on with the, one of the commentators, I think this is helpful, understanding how it was used, how names were used, and what it, what it means. And it's no surprise that it's connected to Christ. This commentator writes that in the ancient world, in the Old Testament, to someone to know someone's name, especially that of God, often meant to enter into an intimate relationship with that person, to share in that person's character or power, to be given a new name was an indication of new status. So you get hidden manna and you get a new status, a new name, a ticket, an invitation to the feast. And when God's name, he says, was applied to a place in the Old Testament, the temple, it's often indicated that his presence was there. When someone gave a name to another person or thing, it meant that they possessed that person or thing. And therefore, believers, reception of this name represents their final reward of consummate identification and unity with the intimate end time presence and power of Christ in his kingdom and under his sovereign authority. Go back to verse 13. They're commended. You hold fast my name. You hold fast my name, you overcome he says, I will give you a new name, which represents a new relationship with him. The lesson from Pergamum is that the church, we need to avoid accommodating Satan. 
And you may go, what does that look like? Well, again, it looks like not only as Satan as a personified person, but the whole system that he represents compromised within the church. Because the reality is, you see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the New, that judgment is not far behind the church that is compromising. Judgment comes. So we all need to look in the mirror and ask those questions. Are we accommodating the message of the church in the midst of a continual press from the culture? I think that's going to get harder and harder and clearer and clearer because they're going to ask for more and more and more. And you see it over and over again, right? It's not enough to celebrate one sin. You've got to celebrate the next and the next and the next the church ultimately is not going to be able to coexist in that way. And we need to be bold about that, clear about that, uncompromising about that. And when the persecution comes, embrace it. It may not be persecution, hopefully it isn't persecution because of something we have done that is sinful. Peter talks about that. But again, when you're standing and saying, no, this is the church, and the church is distinct, and the church is different. You're, you're drawing straighter lines and clearer lines to say this is the difference between the church and the world, and not blurring those things. Persecution is just going to be inevitable. But the cost is worth it. Yes, you're going to lose certain things in this life. In that case, their loss of feasting, their loss of relationships, work, but they realize they get something better in return, the hidden manna, and that new name, that new status that comes consummated in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come, that we do have a greater hope than what is in the world. I hope that is eternal and therefore gives us confidence and gives us strength in the midst of any persecution, in the midst of difficulty and trials. Lord, we are called to stand true, to let the church be the church, as is described in your word, not to defend preferences, but to defend truth. And so may Providence be a church that is a pillar of truth, for that is the design that you've given May we honor you in not only the Sundays that we gather, but throughout the week and the decisions each one of us makes as we represent, more importantly than providence, we represent Christ, our King. We ask this in his name. Amen.